Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you for listening. So uh, one thing that I wanted to mention at the top of this episode uh, is that there are a number of reviews available at the website right now. Uh, we've really tried to step it up. Uh, we brought in a couple of new bloggers, including uh, Tim Acheson and uh, Tober Corrigan, and they're really uh, putting out some, some good uh, material. So do check that out at morethanonelesson.com. And I also wanted to let everybody know that my book, Worth Watching, is still available at the website. So you just go and you click, uh, in case you forget the title, just click the button that says Tyler's book, and that will get you where you need to go. Uh, and it costs uh, $15. And at the moment, it is uh, shipping only in the United States because I'm the one doing the shipping, and I just shipped to somebody in Canada. And no thank you. We are not doing that again. Uh, anyway, so okay, we got a lot of ground to cover, and we've got, uh, we've got a, a guest that is back from, he was last here in October uh, to talk about werewolf movies, and he's back now. It's Andrew Clavin. Andrew, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm making it. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's the thing. In, in L.A., that's what we're all doing, scratching to make it. Yeah, I... Uh, I'll, I'll say this. I, uh, listeners are, are fascinating, are fascinated when, like, I'll tweet out cryptic things about my life. <laughs> so... My wife and I are buying a house, which means selling our current house. This was not part of the plan. We literally, for the other, we're working on adopting a kid in, in, oh a, few, in a few months. And so we're aware that we probably would need a bigger place, but probably not for a couple years. And there is a, an open house half a block from my current house. And my wife and I thought, let's, let's go in just for fun. <laughs> and the moment we stepped inside, it was like, well, crap. Yeah, and, and because that's the one yeah. and it's the one that we might be in for a very long time yeah. and so we uh, started uh, down that road and oh, I've never sold a house before so selling one while getting another one, it really is like a trapeze act where you have to let go of one I, before you it grab is, the that's other exactly, that's exactly right, I, I have a secret though what I do is I say to my wife, tell me when it's over and I'll come home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, the fact that this, oh, and this is at the end of my, of my quarter. And as a, so I'm writing two papers and then I am grading yeah. 33 of them and then next week, 33 uh, tests. And so it's going to be insane. But my wife and I had this discussion where I said, you realize you're going to be handling a lot of this because I'm going to be at school. And she said, that's fine. Because when I helped, quote unquote, helped last time, I just made things worse. So I know my limitations as an administrator, and they are many. I always call my wife vice president in charge of reality. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and I will say that it might result in the next couple of weeks in like a missed episode. But I will do my best to make sure that does not happen. Uh, okay. 
So, what are we talking about? Well, today we are talking about uh, the film Fences, directed by Denzel Washington, came out last year. Uh, it is a film that I remember when I first saw the trailer for it, um, I rather cynically, but not, trying not to be too much, my first thought was like, all right, there's a couple Oscar-nominated performances in here. We all know it. Uh, the question then is, is Viola Davis lead or supporting? Like, that was the question. Um, and I feel bad thinking in those terms, uh, but when you do this long enough, you can't help but think in those terms. And... Um, and it took me a while to see it. It was right in the in the smack dab in the middle of Oscar season. And when I finally did see it, um, I was pretty happy with it. There is, you know, and we'll get into the m more specifics in a moment. But I'll say, in in the broadest possible sense, it is not necessarily a director's movie. Um, Denzel Washington directed this, knowing full well that this is it's a film version of the play. And he's just going to direct to the performances. And I feel like as long as he knows that and doesn't think he's doing something else, I think he's in good shape. So I myself tend to get a little bit wary when actors direct. Um, you get some good ones. You get like a Clint Eastwood. You get, uh, I think, um, oddly enough, I think Warren Beatty has directed some good movies, Robert Redford. Um, but by and large, I don't really like when actors direct. And... I think this is an example why I, I wouldn't say Denzel Washington is like a visualist. He is, he makes character movies and he directs to that, but he doesn't have any pretensions otherwise. So I'm okay with it. So, and one, once again, we'll get into the specifics, which is to say, we'll get into the various characters and performances. Cause that's kind of what there is, uh, in a moment. But, uh, but what, uh, what was your, I know that you're somebody who, you know, you keep an eye on the culture and, uh, and I believe when you and I went out for coffee like a year ago, and it was right in the middle of Oscar season right. then as well. And I know that you're somebody who who has an eye towards uh, awards in a in a cynical way. So like when you saw Fences, did you have a similar reaction well, to me? You know, it's funny. We went back and forth in email because you remember they send me screeners at the end yes, of the years yes. year uh, for the Writers Guild, and um, I, I lost it. And I was too stubborn to actually go out and pay for it. So I had to keep searching. I finally, I think it was my wife finally overturned it in her room and uh, in her workspace. And, and uh, I, you know, I had a very similar reaction. I thought it was a filmed play. Mm -hmm. And I got the feeling basically that Denzel Washington knew that this was one of the performances of his life mm -hmm. and he wanted to capture it on film. Yeah. And I thought, you know, it was, and it was a great performance. I mean, I really thought it was a performance on a whole other level than everybody else in the movie. Anyway, I thought it was worth. I thought it was worthwhile to capture that performance on film, and and so you know I forgave it its staginess and it, sure. and it didn't you know it doesn't open up the play, but on the other hand, it doesn't exactly feel like it doesn't all take place in one room. You right. you could see the play in your mind. You knew how what it would look like, and it's a beautifully written play. And I felt that some of the writing didn't translate to film. Uh, that bothered me. It was very yeah. melodramatic play. You know, everything on stage is language and everything on screen really is visuals. Yeah. And so there was a lot of times when I just thought, gee, if I were making the movie, I would have cut that scene out or cut that scene down. Yeah. And he didn't do it because he just wanted to preserve, this is my guess, that he wanted to preserve that performance. That would be my guess yeah. as well. Uh, there are, you know, I think maybe among the best, like, 
plays that have been adapted. I think Glengarry Glen Ross does a great job because yeah. that play takes place in essentially two places. It's a, it's a two act play. So one is the real estate office and the other is a Chinese restaurant. And I think they do a great job of opening that up. And then oddly enough, another mammoth play, American Buffalo, that does take place in one area, but the director shoots it in such a way so that it seems cavernous. It really does not seem uh, that stagey to me. Um, but this one, yeah, it really does. And, and I feel like it it's how you know he's not a director first. Right, right. An actor first is, I'm saying every single line here, because why would I want to cut anything? Yeah. Um, have you seen, there are clips on, on YouTube of uh, a stage performance of Fences uh, with James Earl Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen any I've, of those? I've never seen it. I've never seen an August Wilson play. Okay. I've seen all, almost all of Mammoth's plays, but I've never seen Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, Mammoth fan and he's, it's interesting. This is another, uh, topic for this topic for another time. But, uh, when he transitioned into film, like he transitioned shockingly well yes, as a yes. director, certainly. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that, so this character, Troy Maxson that Denzel Washington plays, uh, so I saw this clip of a stage performance in which James Earl Jones plays the character. And God bless him, I like James Earl Jones, but I feel like he plays him... This is a very difficult character to play because he makes these big proclamations. And if you're not careful, it will seem like you're making it, like you are like you are genuinely proclaiming something. But, uh, but his character, if you do it right, the character is... Now that I'm mentioning American Buffalo, he's not unlike the character of Teach, where he's got a bunch of, he thinks he has a lot of wisdom. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But either way, he's going to say it Mm. uh, in a way that is, that is delightful and charming and charismatic and yeah, over the top, but, uh, but you can't make it too noble and, and grandiose. And I feel like in that stage performance of James Earl Jones, I feel like it is, um, and I think Denzel Washington actually does. It sounds weird to say that he kind of dials it down because it's a huge performance, but he makes it. He makes the character seem like someone I, I could know at some point, a particularly very charismatic real. theatrical yes, person. Yes. And the, he's very real and he's human. And he uses the fact that Wilson cleverly wrote the play so that you have a chance to get to like the guy before yeah. the layers are stripped off and you start to think like, huh, you know, some of this stuff is, is really not as forgivable as yeah. you, you know, he thinks it is. And, and, and he, but he gives you a lot of time to get used to him and sort of find him, you know, it, like you'd find somebody else's father. It's easy to find other people's fathers kind of charmingly eccentric. And yes. then when you hear the son's point of view, you think, eh, not so much, you know, he's really yeah. a bad guy. And I, I mean, I, I thought he, he managed to capture that and make him very human. Yeah. That is a, re- that's a great way of putting it because, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've uh, talked with friends who I, I, I've met their parents and their parents seem like super cool. Yeah. And then they're like, yeah, you go home. I stay here. And it is exhausting to live with these people. Right. And, uh, and Troy definitely seems that way. And, um, and not to think purely in terms of Oscars, but it was very much best actor was definitely down to him or Casey Affleck. I preferred Casey, Casey Affleck's performance. Cause I think it's a harder thing to do to like keep things inside mm. than to just 
put everything outside? Well, I think Casey Affleck is far, you know, one of the very, very best young actors around. I, I didn't like that movie very much. Oh, I do. I, I know it. people, people yeah. loved it. My, uh, my wife liked it very much. I, I, I found it kind of stagnant and I, you know, <laughs> it's, this is a weird thing to say. Okay. <clears throat> And I, I want to be able to get, take a moment to explain it. I was a little offended by how small the audience for it was. Hmm. Like, in other words, I, like I remember sitting in a waiting room in some studio, and there was a a, a Hollywood reporter there, right. either that or Variety. I can't remember. Casey Affleck is on the top and says this is his breakout role, and I thought. How could anybody have thought that anybody yeah. was going to go see this movie? I mean, it was just a stagnant yeah. part. It's like he never moves. He never budges off the dime. It, it's beautiful. It's it's really well written. It's really well observed. Some really good stuff in it. But ultimately, I was just thinking, who is this for? You know, it's for me, basically. It's for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's like, well, if you're making a movie for me, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Enough movies but, are made not for me. That, uh, but it, it, did, it is the thing that I've noticed about Hollywood now, and I've said this often, is that they, they know how to make good movies, and they know how to make movies people like, but they've forgotten how to make good movies that people like. You know, it's, it's interesting. So I'm TAing for this film history class. So I'm, ta- I'm, I'm teaching a bunch of, you know, 18 and 19 okay. year olds about film. And, and it is interesting that there, you've seen uh, the best years of our lives, mm. I would assume, right? Yeah, terrific. I love that movie yeah. so much. And one thing in, in doing research about, so we screen it in the class. So all these kids are watching this three hour movie about war veterans. Right. Um, so Gone with the Wind is adjusted for inflation, still the number one movie of all time oh, as far as box office. Yeah. For a while, number two was the best years of our lives. Yeah, I know. It was the highest grossing movie of that year. And for a while, it was behind it was number two behind Gone with the Wind, which is still number one, adjusted for inflation. Um, and so there's part of me that's just like, well, Manchester by the Sea isn't that different than something like the best years of our lives, but it's just when you when you want when you're in this film history class, you just see this progression, or maybe not, yeah. of spectacle takes over mm-hmm. everything. Um, sometimes good spectacle, like Lawrence of Arabia. Sometimes not great spectacle, like every Transformers movie. And it's just one of those things that like Hollywood does. Every once in a while, you get something like Hidden Figures, which I didn't think was that great of a movie, but like that movie made a ton of money. Yeah. And it's a movie for grownups. Yeah, it, you know? it does happen. But when you go back, I did this once for a blog post rare. I was writing. When you go back and look at the Oscar winners for a long time, they're the, mo- the biggest grossing picture oh, yeah. and the best movie. Yeah. And that just has stopped. That is just, And that's yeah. something, by the way, that happens to all art forms as they get old, happen to poetry, happen to uh, novels, that the intellectual thing that the critics like yeah. becomes the gold standard. And then the rest of, like, the rest of yeah. you know, U- Ulysses becomes yeah. the gold standard and all other novels become detective stories. So. It, uh, Hmm, interesting. That's uh, yeah. It's something that I that I lament because it wasn't even that long ago that a movie. I don't think Rain Man is an amazing movie, but that was the number one movie of that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that was an, an adult movie. Yeah, yeah no absolutely. Question. And and Forrest Gump was made yeah. a ton of money. Well, you know, p- partly it's it's capitalism. I hate to say it, but as sure. you sit there and you say, what, they always start out the same way because they do this in publishing, which is what I've been in most of my life. And they, they'll start out and they say, well, we'll publish Stephen King and that will pay for the right. good writers. And then suddenly it dawns on somebody, well, why don't we just publish Stephen King twice and forget the good writer? Right. And then yeah, we won't yeah. lose that money. You know, and, yeah. and those guys who used to like to publish the good writer, not to say that King's a bad writer, he's a very good writer, but you know, they use him yeah. to publish the literature 
literary guy. The, the, the editor who published literary guy gets old and, you yeah. know, cashiers out and nobody, nobody's left who wants to do that. Well, and it's, and, and there is this feeling in studios what, that despite it being primarily about money, certainly at the studio level, there, there is also this feeling like, well, look, we can't just nakedly grab for money. We need to at least give the vaguest impression that we are in favor of art as well. So, okay, we'll bankroll one or two prestige pictures, give it a nice Oscar push, and that will give us at least some kind of uh, pedigree. Right, but they have given up on the vision, and this did used to be a vision, because mm-hmm. I was in the business uh, working when it was, 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 there did used to be this vision of the gold standard is to make a great movie that people like, and they've yeah. just given up on that. And I, it's all gone into TV. I mean, all the writers yeah. working TV, all the best actors are in TV, yeah. and that's, you know. And as somebody who, you know, I like TV, but I'm still in love with movies, yeah. and... Uh, uh, painful to see it's, it is it's, pain, it's painful to me to watch young people come to town to want to get into the movies slowly realizing that they're going to have to choose whether they want to do good stuff or where they want to be in the movies yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's a, a strange kind of thing yeah it's very rare for because that's the thing is you know you were saying with with casey affleck is like oh this is a breakout role he's been in the business for a long time yeah, yeah. You know, and yes, this will give him more opportunities, but he was getting opportunities anyway. But who, who on earth could have thought that was going to be a breakout role? You know, I mean, that's, that's, yeah. there is no, that's. It's the Oscar itself that's the breakout role. It's yeah. not even the, the character. I, I don't know. I, I suspect he's not going to be. He hasn't got, by the way, I mean, he's a better actor than his brother, but he hasn't got anywhere near his brother's charisma. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I definitely prefer Casey Affleck, but uh, th- th- it's weird. They are such different types of actors. Yes, they are. That's true. Um, That's very true. Although, you know what? Did you see Gone Baby Gone? Yeah. I never would have thought that... Sorry, we'll get back to Fences in a minute. <laughs> sorry, everybody. Yeah. This happens sometimes. I never would have thought that Casey Affleck would be such a good Boston tough guy. No, he was good in that film. Um, yeah, he's, he's a terrific actor. And in a way, it's just like, well, the only person that would have cast him as that is his brother. So maybe nepotism works sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so to go to back to Fences, um, so I saw it in the theater. Um, we also get screeners, but at the critic level. So it's anybody's guess what we're going to get. Yeah. Sometimes it's these small movies that... I guess maybe could get nominated for some critics award. It's crazy, but, uh, but we didn't get one for fences. And so I went and saw that in just this, a very, what I would say is a very mainstream theater in Granada Hills. And so the film had been out for a while and there were, I'd say maybe 25 people in the theater. And I remember just thinking like, well, this isn't the type of movie that mass audiences see either and it made a it made okay money and it just got me things like you know on a number of levels like god bless denzel washington who's willing to use his star power to get this play seen mm-hmm. uh and to bring in someone like viola davis and some lesser known actors like stephen henderson who's primarily a stage actor and and just using his you know using his celebrity for good at least on an artistic level um he's a he's an actor that I don't think he's ever let me down as far as a uh, performance. Oh, I no, remember no, he's a flight. Terrific. I love, yeah. I love him in flight. And he's and, one of the last actor stars too. He's one of the last, uh, you know, actual movie stars. That's true. You know, I mean, I was just, I just the other day saw the remake of the magnificent seven, which pales next to the original, yeah. but at the same time he walks onto the screen and you know, a movie star has arrived, you know, and that's a, that's a rare thing nowadays. Yeah, and he does seem, my friends and I ta- have talked about this in regards to Denzel Washington, that he seems to exist on his own, outside of Hollywood. It's Even though he, he 
makes films on a regular yeah. basis. But it's just like he is bankable. He's dependable. He de- there's really no ebb and flow. He's he reminds me almost of Tom Cruise in that way. Although people st- still think in terms of box office, and he does have the Mission Impossible movies. But uh, just these guys who like are good actors and they are movie stars. And I guess they came about, they came up at about the same time, which is like the mm. late eighties, early nineties. And so they are, I feel like those are the two remnants of, yeah, that's uh, of that right. time. That's right. Um, so, uh, so I did also want to talk about, um, Viola Davis who did win the, the Oscar for best supporting actress. And I would say is a co-lead, I believe she won the Tony for lead actress for huh, this interesting. play. Yeah. Um, but you know, to go back to the Oscars, they, they put it put it out there and whatever they think will will win that's how well to go back to Denzel Washington that's how he gets how he wins best actor for training day and Ethan Hawke is nominated for supporting despite being the main character and on screen for like 12 <laughs> minutes more right it's just a strategy game yeah. yeah but uh but yeah Viola Davis is i would say ultimately the heart of the film um huh. You know, it's funny. I, I actually didn't think this was one of her greatest performances. I think she's a terrific actress. Mm-hmm. And I thought she was, she didn't have that much to do in a way, the way, mm-hmm. he, and he so dominates the story and so yeah. takes over the, the picture. Um, I, yeah, I, I didn't find her, I, I'm not sure I would have said she was the heart of the film. I thought mm-hmm. she was, I, I suppose if, you, you, if you're using that to say that she's the person with the most heart in the film, I suppose sure. that, that, <laughs> yeah, that's sure. true. Um, you know, it's, it's just so much a, yeah. A mainstream, it's yeah. his movie and it's his story. It's an amazingly powerful role. And I think the, the thing that strikes me about, and maybe it's more the character, but I do think, I think her performance is very solid. Um, this idea that in a way she's, she's not necessarily a battered wife, but she's, she lets him get away with quite a bit. Oh yeah. And then by the end, she doesn't, mm-hmm. she puts her foot down and says, I, I didn't write the, the line down, but like, you know, this baby will have a mother, but you don't have a woman anymore. Right. And then when he eventually spoilers, everybody, when he eventually dies, um, then she defends him against her, her children, at least in, in certain ways. And I feel like this is somebody who, if you were to look at her a certain way, you'd say she has like no agency in her life at all, hmm. but it would appear that that is a choice she has made. Yes, and you know, I, I'm not sure I would say that because okay. I, I actually believe that women have a kind of power that is invisible, mm-hmm. and a lot of times, um, you know, women are portrayed when they are portrayed as oh, the current term being like a surrendered wife, or sure, sure. Um, you know, a uh, a submissive wife or something. They're portrayed as having no power. That's completely false. I mean, women who are uh, loved and who are a part of a, of a marriage like that often have this tremendous moral force yeah. that guides things, uh, you know, unseen. I mean, that's why the Bible's advice for marriage is really good because mm-hmm. people always quote the one half and say women should be submissive to their husbands, but then yeah. it says husbands should empty themselves for their wives. And if you follow that advice, women like the Viola Davis character have a lot of uh, force, and you can see it in the movie. You can yeah. see that by almost by standing still, she has this gravitational yeah. pull over him that makes him a better man. It doesn't make him a good man because he's very far off <laughs> yeah. the mark, but but it makes him a much better man. And I thought I I thought they portrayed that really well, and 
You know, it's funny about, the, one of the things that's funny about this film is, of course, nowadays when everybody looks at everything in terms of race, you know, sure. you see it as a black story. But it just reminded me of every play about every father I've ever seen, especially uh, stories like uh, Death of a Salesman, sure. um, Long Day's Journey into Night, where you see this tremendous character. And, and in um, Death of a Salesman, which at the time was revolutionary because it's a tragedy about an ordinary man. The wife has this wonderful speech, very famous speech where she that she makes where she says, attention must be paid to such a man. You know, right. even though he's a little guy, he matters. And that was this very American statement. Yeah. And I thought that she kind of played that role in this film where she was sort of saying, this is, you know, obviously he's a, he's a garbage man. That's yeah. what he does. You know, he's like, he's in he's the- He's a garbage in, man and he's kind of a garbage man. Yeah, and he's kind of uh, a garbage man the in the eyes of the world. He's, he's a nobody, but she's saying she gives him- by giving him her love, she makes him somebody and she upholds his dignity and death. Yeah. And I think it's a, an apt comparison because even at the end when she is talking about him to his son, she is essentially saying like, attention must be paid. Yeah, you know, yeah. she's, she's saying like, obviously he was not perfect. He hurt me in ways that, that uh, I never would have expected. But at the same time, he was still striving. He still did what he could the way he could. It's a, It's a film that... I, I tend to like movies that are very honest yeah, about sure. their characters. They don't they don't condemn them, mm-hmm. but they also are not going to sugarcoat things. Yeah. And I feel like her character, and uh, you know, this is it's based on a play, which I, and I think you find that a lot more in plays yes. is just willing to just shoot you straight as far as who these characters are. And I feel like both in Denzel Washington's performance and in Viola Davis's performance and character, who I think we kind of take our cues from, it's just like, we're so, I'm so inclined to condemn him after a certain point. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, But then it's like, well, look, if she's able to forgive him, you know, not to the point that she's going to let him get away with stuff anymore, but if she's willing to forgive him, then like, I guess I have to as well because, like, she's <laughs> she's really in charge even of me. That's a that's a very good point, and I think that there also is this thing about all these stories: the death of a salesman and and this, and um, that is very American and very modern. Because mm-hmm. until I, I don't know, let's place it at the you know, like in the 18th century. A son's life and a father's life were pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. You know, you did what your father did, and you did it under circumstances that were not almost indistinguishable. Yeah. Once you get to the modern world, the industrial revolution, you have this world in which sons are doing something, living lives utterly different. And when you look at this guy and you go back into his past, and the play does go back into his past, you realize that he's coming from a place that his son will never understand. And I mean, I think most of us feel that way about our fathers. I mean, I know, you know, I had terrible problems with my father, but I look back at where he came from. And, you know, he went through the Depression, he went through World War II, he went through all this stuff that I didn't have to go through. And it does give you this path to forgiveness. And I think that that's what she understands and that's what she's seen that the son can't even imagine, really. And... And yeah, and we, we're definitely going to come come back to that. That'll be the big uh, the big push of of this episode thematically. But I did want to mention a couple other uh, of the of the characters. Once I, once again, I mentioned Stephen Henderson as uh, Jim uh, Denzel Washington's like buddy from yeah, work. Great actor. <laughs> I never saw him before. He's yeah, just a great he's actor. primarily a stage guy, yeah. and yeah, I thought he was great. Unbelievable. Like it's yeah. it's got to be tough to, and and I don't mean to speak ill of him, like. He's a very forceful actor, but like it's got to be difficult to hold your own alongside Denzel Washington, especially when he's giving that, that performance. performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if there is, it, it's weird. Like it's almost as though 
Washington's character exists, uh, what is it? At the pleasure of his wife and his best buddy, mm-hmm. because they are very patient with him. Yep. And there comes a moment when, you know, his friend knows about his extracurricular activities before his wife does. And so he's like, hey, uh, are you really sure that this is what you should be doing? And and he just uh, he has kind of he has a real wisdom, but he doesn't seem artificially wise as like best friends and mentors often do in movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a very lived in real performance. Uh, and I think Denzel Washington was smart to cast a lesser known actor in that role hmm. because I think it, for me, it makes me pay more attention to him. Well, I think one of the, you know, one of the things that makes a truly great actor and, and Denzel at his best is a truly great actor mm-hmm. is, is that they're not afraid to share the screen with people who are great yeah. because they know they just make them better. You know? Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then I will also mention uh, Michael T. Williamson, who's been around for a while. He was Bubba in, in Forrest Gump, uh, and he was uh, he was in um, uh, let's see, he was in the remake, the HBO remake of Twelve Angry Men, no. mm-hmm. uh, and he played the Ed Bagley character. So they thought it would be interesting to have this you know African American yeah. guy be prejudiced against like a Hispanic uh, defendant, and he, he does a, a great job. Um, yeah, he's an actor that, and he was on a show called. Boomtown. Do you remember Boomtown? It was I like on for two seasons. Yeah. It was like 10 years ago. But, uh, and the show was fine. I liked it, but I was young. Um, but he was great in it. He's a very dependable actor. And in this movie, he's playing a character who has, has brain damage from the war. And that's always a difficult type of character to play because if you overplay it, it'll seem like, it'll seem very fake. Well, actors tell me that these are easier parts to play. But I would have no idea. I mean, I guess that, uh, you know, they always say, you know, it's like the joke in, in you know, going the full retard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I thought he was wonderful in it, very sympathetic, very yeah. uh, very touching. Yeah. And it's a nice moment that, that though he is often a burden and annoying to the people around him, like his brother, so he plays Denzel Washington's brother, um, and Troy, as exasperated as he can get, um, and as selfish as Troy is capable of being, like he has nothing but love and sympathy mm-hmm. for his brother. Yeah. And so it's that, that is, and I guess maybe this is from a, a, a script standpoint is that like, you know, everything eventually points back to this Troy character and that he can't be summed up as, well, he's purely selfish. No, no, not he at all. Lo- no, he, yeah. he does love his wife. He does love his son. He clearly loves his brother, and he is able to do good things for them, but he also can't get out of his own way and does very selfish things and very hurtful things. He's all of these things. In other words, he is a, just a very human he's character. Human, yeah. Tremendously damaged, too. You know, yes. he's been through hell. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, listeners, I would highly recommend you seek out Fences, and then I will briefly touch on the companion film, which I admittedly had not seen in a while, but it left an impression on me because my favorite actor is Robert Duvall. Yeah. Uh, and it is The Great Santini, written and directed by Louis John Carlino, who I looked up and uh, he'd written a number of things, but he did not direct much. There's only one of three movies he directed. Um, and so it features Robert Duvall, Blythe Danner, Michael O'Keefe, uh, uh, David Keefe, and uh, and a number of others. But um, And uh, Duvall, this is one of the films that he was uh, that he was nominated for best actor for losing to Robert De Niro for Raging Bull no one was going to win against him um, and now I believe listening to your podcast I believe there is a clip from 
the great Santini <laughs> yes. that you play. Yes. Now we don't want to get necessarily get into okay. why, okay. but uh, yeah. but it led me to believe that th- that it's a movie that you're generally aware of and certainly have seen. Oh yeah, uh, is it? A, what what is your take on the film? Well, I I thought that. If I had to pick the greatest actor of his generation, it would be Duvall. And I think this is one up there with Rambling Rose and a couple mm-hmm. of other things that he's done. I think this is one of his greatest performances. It's a, yeah. it's a you know, I mean, the, the, the story of fathers and sons is always a riveting one. Yeah. This is a, a, a good one. Pat Conroy, obviously, was this is based on his novel and obviously was writing about something he really knew about. It's a, it's a movie like Fences that there were times when I felt I, I should watch it like a horror movie through my fingers yeah. because he does things to his wife and his son that are so insupportable and yet you do see his pain. He plays it so you see the guy's pain. You see what a, a, yeah. what a pain in the neck he is on the one hand but also that he's doing coming from a place of suffering and he too has seen things. He's a Vietnam guy and he's seen yeah. things that like... You know, we, we, with the line from Shakespeare, we are young, we'll never see so much or live so long, you know yeah. I mean? So, so we, there's a lot of sympathy for it. And I, yeah, no, I think it's a, I think it's a terrific film. I think it's a really good film. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember it struck me very, it was very powerful. I remember it very clearly. And, uh, and I just think it's a great performance. I mean, it's, and it's something that I, you know, if you are an actor of any repute in Hollywood, you know, people are going to stroke your ego and it's got to be difficult to take a part like this, mm-hmm. especially a lead role. You know, I mean, Duval can be in, uh, n- you know, before there's like network and apocalypse now and just be over the top and delightful. Um, but to play a lead role that is not merely complicated, but at times quite hateable. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, and I would say this about Denzel Washington as well. Um, there's a real lack of vanity there. Um, a desire to like, I'm going to play this character a hundred percent. I'm not going to apologize for him in my performance. And I feel like that's something that a lot of younger actors do if they're playing like jerks, um, is that they'll, they'll, it's, it's even, it's hard to even put into words, but they are conveying something with their body language, with their facial expression that seems almost like they're apologizing. And it's like, I don't think this character would be apologizing. Mm-hmm. I think you, the actor, are apologizing. Yes, I've no, I've, you know, I've always noticed that in movies. I'm, I'm a big fan of A Christmas Carol, and I've always loved the Alistair Sim version because he's mm-hmm. the only one who doesn't play Scrooge like he's a bad guy. He plays him like he's a guy who's convinced that he's right. Yeah. And I think that that is exactly what the, what Duvall does in this. And Duvall, you know, he's that rare thing, which is a character actor who gets a chance to make some yeah. big, uh, starring roles. Like Paul Giamatti is that guy now. And it's mostly because of The Godfather that that was such a yeah. huge, huge movie that it, it thrust him into, and, and some of those movies were really bad. Like he made some really uh, anodyne cop movies yeah. that uh, you know um, that he just couldn't pull it off. But when he found his place of making kind of smaller movies with real car- interesting characters, uh, he was great. I remember, uh, so I, th- I think it was an HBO movie called Stalin, in which he played <laughs> Joseph Stalin. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he won like a. I keep thinking, I keep talking about awards. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't actually care that much about awards, but it's a thing I keep bringing up in like when I'm teaching my students, I don't know, I could let go of this, especially with the Golden Globes. Ugh, why would I care about such a thing? But, um, but yeah, you know, this is a guy who has played Adolf Eichmann. Yeah. Joseph Stalin, you know, Bull Meacham from The Great Santini, and then uh, Frank Hackett from Network. Like it is, he's an actor who, 
he goes where the interesting parts are yeah. and he will play them 100%. And yeah, with the, with Stalin, he'll play him 100% monstrous. He yeah. does not layer a lot of humanity on there. And then you see a film like Rambling Rose, which you know is not a great film, but it has one of the great film performances in mm-hmm. it. I mean, it's just, it's a very small film. You know, yeah. it doesn't, never becomes anything really big, but boy, <laughs> that part, he was so real in that movie and such a, a kind of, sweet, lovable character in his yeah. way, caught in this very strange situation. And, uh, yeah, he's just got a, he's got real range. Uh, he reminds me of Casey Affleck in a way. I mean, Affleck reminds, it was the other way around. Of course, Affleck yeah. reminds me of him. Yeah. It's odd that you, that you mentioned that because I was about to mention, sorry, once again, Oscars, Robert Duvall won best actor for Tender Mercies, which is a very dialed in performance yeah. and not unlike Casey Affleck's performance in, yes, in Manchester yes. by the Sea. Uh, I haven't seen Tender Mercies a while, in that's, a while. I that's watch a film that. I love. No, I, I, do, I, I yeah. do love that. That's a small, there's a small film that I just love. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, so yeah, I would highly recommend, uh, great Santini. And it is, it's, it's about this military father who is, you know, he, he is in charge of his family. Yeah, he's abusive. I he, mean, he's, he's abusive. Genuinely abusive. Yeah. But there, there are moments, you know, there's a moment when his son played by Michael O'Keefe, um, his son turns 18. And so, uh, they're all having dinner and, and he like, uh, proposes a toast to his son. It's actually, and it's a very loving toast and it's, you know, and I, I did not have a father that was really abusive at all. He did, but, um, but I didn't. And so I don't know what it's like to, to have somebody in my life who can be remarkably cruel and yet still believe and genuine and, and actually do and actually did love me. You know, mm-hmm. I've never had anything like that, thankfully. Um, but I know plenty of people that have, and it is, it, it sounds really awful. Um, because it's like, I so badly want to believe that this person loves me and I think they do, but Oh, why do they have to just keep acting like this? And that's well, yeah. And also, when you're a child, your parents are your moral universe. So the yeah. immediate assumption with almost every abused child is that he's somehow to blame. Because yeah. why? You know, if I'm being hit by lightning, why it must be my yeah. fault? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, walking around with these golf clubs, yeah. and um, yeah. And so, uh, so along those lines, uh, I wanted this idea of of fathers specifically. There are movies about. Uh, let's just say difficult mothers like uh, uh, ordinary people, for example. Yeah, that's a good one. Mommy, um, mommy Durst. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's a lot of issues yeah. with that one, but uh, but yeah, and um, but I want to talk about fathers specifically. Um, and so there's a there's a just a little to kind of set up the theme for what we'll, we'll what we'll be talking about. So there's a, a website called Key Life, and this is a writer named Alex Early. And he says, I've gotten a lot of questions lately by other Christians in the church regarding how to go about relating to God as father when one has an understanding of a father that is so skewed, so damaged, so beyond repair. Many people grew up with an abusive father, negligent father, or an absent father. For some, tragedy struck and our fathers died way too early, leaving some questions unanswered, conflicts unresolved, and memories never made. Thus, for countless squirming saints in the church, the idea of having or even wanting an intimate relationship with God as Father is not only incomprehensible, it is altogether repulsive. Men are bad, corrupt, and fail. How, how on earth can I trust my Heavenly Father? And so here's the thing. This is, gonna, this is very strange. It is weird to, 
it was weird for me to be watching Fences and be reminded of somebody else's story. Mm. But I had only recently finished your book, your memoir, um, The Great Good Thing, which uh, I will recommend up and down. Uh, I will make it available in our uh, More Than One Lesson Amazon store so you can buy it very, uh, very easily. Um, I think it's a really great book. Um, and I feel, I feel, uh, it feels weird saying like, Hey, that reminds me of you. <laughs> like it's, it's, it reminded me of me too. Well, and that, and that's, it, yeah. it's something that really struck me. And so that's why I reached out to, to you, right. um, to talk about this. Um, because, you know, you mentioned earlier that you had a, a rough relationship with your father and, and so, uh, you are welcome to talk a little bit about that, but, uh, you know, as you, as you just mentioned, when you watched Fences, it reminded you of you a little bit, like what, uh, what specifically? Well, some of the stuff I was talking about, the American experience, I mean, my, the, the interesting thing about my father is my father was a good man. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was a nice man. He was a loving man. He loved my mother, uh, his, his marriage, their, their great marriage shaped and made possible my great marriage, you know. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot that I owe him, and he uh, he was not um, he was not a cruel guy. Yeah. But he was a professional comedian, and he was brutally funny. Uh, and there was something about me that he that just set him off. So he would rip me to shreds as a little kid. He would just you know ridicule, mock me. He would hit me in ways that he never did. My brothers, I hmm. had three brothers. We were all of us, you know. It was a very very rollicking, violent household. Yeah. And, uh, but there was something about me that just really got to him in some strange way. And people immediately leap to, well, you must have been very much like him. But the people who know me best say, no, you're actually not that much like him. And there was just something stubborn in me and intractable that bothered him. And I had ambitions. I think that bothered him. And so very early on in my life, and I'm talking about like 11 or 12, yeah. the idea came into my head that this man is not my friend. He does not want what's best for me. Hmm. If I listen to his advice, if I take his guidance, he will destroy me. And huh. at that point, our relationship became just you know, at daggers drawn for yeah. a huge, uh, a, a lot of time. And, and one of the things that's in, that was interesting is I came to faith, which took me a long time. I was a secular guy for most of my life. And as I came to faith, um, you know, I, there were, I went through a period because a psychiatry saved my life. A psychiatrist basically saved my life. Uh, I went through a period where I was a Freudian. And of course, what Freud does is he materializes, or he makes everything material. Yeah. And what, what he would say of God, and he says it quite openly, is God is a projection of our fathers onto the cosmos. And what I began to realize when I came to faith was he got it exactly wrong, hmm. that what we expect from our father comes from our inner knowledge of God. It's the hmm. exact opposite, that our father is actually a projection of God onto a human being. And when I started to realize that, I realized that your first instinct in your relationship with God is to, to now reverse the process and do what Freud said, to impose your father's face on, yeah. uh, on, on God. And that can be real problematical if your father was <laughs> yeah. somebody you were afraid of or who was abusive or whatever. And so what you have to go back to is you have to go back to what, how, the question is, how do you know? that your father is supposed to be just? How do you know that he's supposed to be good? How do you know that he's supposed to be strong and brave and do all these things? There's, there's nothing in evolution 
even in evolutionary biology, which makes up all these just so yeah. stories about how things come to be, there's nothing that can really explain your expectations of your father. You yeah. can, I can understand why you'd want him to be strong and protective. That makes sense. Yeah. But why do you expect him to be just? Why do you expect him to be wise? And why are you so disappointed when he's not? You know. And sometimes, why do you expect him to stick around? Like this if you're if you're a, an evolutionist, like you look at animals. There's a long history of the well, male saying, "Well, I did my part." That's that's Time something. That is something I'd like to talk about too in, sure. in a minute. But, but let me just. To just finish this thought, I do believe that you can go back into yourself and say, what, what is it that my father's wrongdoing violated? What mm-hmm. idea is it that he violated? And then start to say, ah, well, maybe that is what God is. You know, maybe that, that, Interesting. that disappointment is coming from the difference between my father and what I know of God in my heart. And that can begin to heal your relationship with God, even though it can't necessarily heal your relationship with your father. And on the subject of divorce, because this is a big bugbear with me, this is a okay. real, um, I believe that many of the problems we're seeing on, on campuses today when people are so angry and intolerant and won't listen to ideas and think that they're oppressed when they're obviously privileged and think that other people are privileged when they're, you know, it's, they're just living their lives. I think a lot of this comes from a phenomenon of divorce where when people get divorced, they are told that they're all right, that, you know... It, you'll be okay. You know, people yeah. get over this. They never get over it. People never get over divorce. Yeah. Divorce is like having your planet explode. And to tell you people that they're all right is to cheat them out of their natural reaction to this. And I yeah. think some of these professors who have their own thing to sell, they have their own theories to sell, they tap into that anger that people have never expressed. And that, I think, also separates people from God because they have this anger that they, and they don't know where it is because they don't want to blame their parents because right. they, their parents have told them that it's not so bad. And that, I think, separates people from God as well. And I, I truly believe that there's a reason, you know, one of the things that bothers me in the church is that Jesus never mentioned homosexuality, but he mentioned divorce Mm -hmm. and he did not like it. (laughs) Like it always bothers me, the ratio of the number of times uh, we hear uh, gay people condemned and how little we hear people say, you know what, you actually shouldn't get divorced if you have children in your life. You know, that's a thing you should not do. Yeah. A big part of the, of the, the, the legal gay marriage debate of the last few years that I had heard was you know, oh, so, and, and legally, I'm I'm okay with gay marriage for a number of reasons, but one thing that people said is, oh, you Christians have a, a really, oh, now marriage is so important, but you're not really fighting against this idea of divorce. You, you'll downplay it. It's obviously not ideal, but you don't talk, you really don't seem to fight much against it anymore. Yeah. Where, where Jesus did. And, yeah. and obviously, I think that there are exceptions. I think abuse and uh, addiction can really make it better to get out than yeah. to stay. But I think we went through a period and are still going through a period in certain economic classes where people got divorced to make their lives better. I, this, isn't, this isn't the love story I yeah. wanted. And I think once you have kids, I just think that's off the table. And I think that you, know, you don't blow up your child's planet. That's yeah. And it's and it's interesting what you mentioned the idea of of saying like oh it's all right, and you know it it comes from this place of wanting to assure someone that they will be all right, yeah. but in doing and, so and to take this, the guilt away from you too, you know yeah and <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't allow somebody to grieve over like well this isn't if nothing at the very least this isn't ideal right this is not how it should be I would prefer to have two of you around 
whenever I, you know, a mom and a dad, whenever I need one of or the other of you. You know, it's it's really interesting, too. I mentioned that as, as a young person, I said to myself, my father is not my friend. He's not mm-hmm. on my side. And even though I said that to myself, I never really believed it until I got older, much older, really. Even when I noticed that my life was really spiraling down the drain, and at one point I virtually went insane. I don't know how mm. else to put it. Even then, the real the realization came to me that oh, my family was not the suburban happy family that I thought yeah. it was. But it still took me years and years and years before I could say, you know, he really did something wrong, you know. And yeah. and in the the thing with, of course, a relationship is both people are always in the wrong. But if you're a child. You know, you're kind of yeah. off the hook. Yeah, you have a little bit less responsibility. <laughs> yeah, and, and so it took it took me a long time to realize just how wrong uh, he was, and then a long time after that to forgive him yeah. for it, which was a very difficult process as well. But I, anyway, I, you know, to get back to the question of, of imposing God, uh, imposing God on your father and imposing your father on God, I really do think that that is one of the reasons these father stories are so compelling and our relationship with our father is so compelling because I do think it is meant to be. It is meant, I think your father is meant to be the representative of God on earth. And how often do we get that right? Not so often. Yeah. And and then the idea, not to go too too far down this because that's a whole other episode, but the idea of of marriage and like sacrificial love towards this other person is also supposed to be an image. And, you know, I look at my own marriage and I just think like, wow, I hope God doesn't get it wrong this often uh, because I am really screwing up a lot. Um, and, uh, and my wife is also screwing up a lot, but let's not, let's at the moment, let's focus on what I'm doing because that's the only thing I can actually control. Um, and, uh, yeah, I definitely think that for me, because yeah, my, my father did pass away at a fairly young age, but, um, but he was not uh, abusive or anything like that. He did not really know his father. He had a stepfather who was drunk and was mm. abusive, not necessarily physically, but certainly verbally. Mm. And I think my brother, my, my, my dad tried very much to move away from that. And in doing so, he actually was a very unemotional man. Interesting. I have no doubt that at some point he did say he loved me. I can't remember it, wow. yeah. um, but I knew he did. But it was an intellectual knowledge. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Um, and as as time has gone on, and you know, unfortunately, after he passed away, that's when I started to know more about his childhood and all that. And like you said, it's the more you realize what he could have been. He could have followed in his stepfather's footsteps, yeah. but he absolutely was not going to do that. And so it's just like, okay, well, he did. In some cases, he did the best he could. Well, I will tell you. I will tell you something. I mean, all we, we can all only do the best we can. But there are a couple of things I noticed right after I had a kid. One mm-hmm. is my big fear was that I would not be a better father than my father was, and I realized mm-hmm. the day I brought my daughter home, my first child home, I realized that was that was a too low a bar. I, yeah. was, I was going to be a better father than my father yeah. was. That would be easy. But but the other thing is that children touch. If, if you think of yourself as a piano, they play every key. So if you think you're going to protect them from anything about yourself, you're not. And that puts a lot of responsibility on you to get a lot of stuff done in your own heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you know, you, you have a child when you have a child. But I, I really do think, and this is part of the Christ story. I, this, is part, this is essential to the Christ story. I think that fathers have a responsibility 
to pay their own debts and not pass them on sure. to their children. And when I say debts, I don't mean financial, although that's helpful too. Yeah. I mean the debts of anger, of disappointment, of failure that all people carry around with us. We all carry yeah. around these debts. And so you say, for instance, your father was a good man and that's a, a beautiful thing, but he was, had a hard time being emotional yeah. because of where that was a debt that he hadn't paid. Yeah. And you get stuck with it to some degree. Yeah. Now, something like you are going to pass on. You're scarred by history. You are sure. part of the world. You are going to pass on stuff. But you can do a lot of work on, to remind yourself that you don't want to be fighting yourself. You want to be as open as you can, but you want as many of those debts to be paid. Pay off your yeah. anger. Pay off your uh, disappointment. Pay off all yeah. the things that we come in life. And don't make your kid carry that debt because he's going to acquire his own debts as he goes for, forward. Yeah, there's a reason that there is a phrase, the sins of the fathers. Yeah, you know, That's like, right. That's right. Um, yeah. And it's it's a very and it's a fairly common phrase, and it's a the sentiment of it is a very sad one mm -hmm. that it is what is it visited on the sons or something like the that. Sun, yeah. And um, and yeah, and so I I wanted to uh, quote a line. It is the big it's the trailer moment as well from Fences, um, in which Troy is talking. His his son asks, you know, why don't you like me? And he says, like you, yes, I go, I go out of here every morning. I bust my butt. Cause I like you. You're about the biggest fool I ever saw. A man is supposed to take care of his family. You live in my house, feed your belly with my food, put your behind on my bed because you're my son. It's my duty to take care of you. I owe a responsibility to you. I ain't got to like you. Now I gave everything I got to give you. I gave you your life. Now on one hand, there's a certain nobility in that. On the other hand, this is how, when I was younger, this is undoubtedly how I saw my father, mm -hmm. and it is absolutely how I saw God. This idea of like, okay, so there's a definite sense, it's like, they are obligated to me, they are responsible for me, not 100% sure if they like me. Uh -huh. um, and <laughs> and as, I've gotten, as I got older and I started to be able to connect with my father more, uh, intellectually, if not uh, emotionally, a little bit, um, I understood like, oh no, he does like me. We do have things in common. We actually get along and I do love him and he loves me. Um, but that image of a rather, for me, a rather detached God um, who, yes, 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 I love you because I say I love everybody. And I guess that includes <laughs> you. Uh, liking you, I don't know. You're into some pretty dumb stuff. <laughs> You know, uh, it's, it's a thing that I, that I'm, you know, and I deal with depression and all kinds of stuff, but, uh, but it's, it's a, it's an image that I got over with my dad and maybe his death kind of hastened that a little bit mm. and wanting to make some kind of peace. But with God, I'm still having a hard time. Interesting. With. I, you know, I, I always hate it. And I've heard some preachers I really admire, like Tim Keller say this, and I just, I just completely disagree with it. It'll say, uh, God doesn't love you because you're lovable. He loves you because he's loving. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a nonsense. That's an, a theological nonsense. Yeah. If God loves you, you're lovable. That's, that's the definition that's of the being lovable. Yeah. yeah. So they're happening at the same time. That's, that's right. So, I mean, I think that is something. And I, and by the way, I, I struggle with this too. I have a very hard time. Uh, I don't have a hard time loving people. I have a hard time receiving love. Sure. And, and I think, you know, one of the reasons I love the scene that you just read is because this is an essential part of being a father. And I suspect it's an essential part of being God in, in some way is that as Chris Rock did the best routine about this. He said, yeah. nobody says to his father, it's really nice to have light to read by. <laughs> you yeah. know, thank you, dad. Nobody ever says that. And part of being a man and part of the thing I object to so much about feminism is it doesn't take this into account. Part of being a man is living with that. You mm -hmm. live with the fact that it never really occurs to somebody yeah. to say, thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you for filling my belly. Thank you for yeah. all, you know, and, 
and so you kind of live with that and you realize you do feel that way where your kids say to you, you know, why don't you love me? And you say, love me, you know, my whole life, you know, everything you yeah. have is, is, is given to you yeah. by me. Uh, I remember, uh, since we're talking about movies, I, I wrote a very terrible movie. It wasn't terrible when I wrote it, but when it was finished, it was awful <laughs> called one missed call. Funny how got, that happens. Yeah, sometimes. I know. <laughs> it's got, it's got a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. It actually, hey, yes, it actually lost. Achievement. It actually won that year's like Rotten Tomatoes bad movie award. And uh, it was a remake of a Japanese film. And, and my son went and saw it, and he was in a very, my son is a, a brilliant, brilliant scholar. He's a, I mean, I'm not just saying that because I'm proud of him, but right. I am proud of him, but he's also a brilliant scholar. And so I was sending him to, it's like having a kid with a 100-mile-an-hour you know, fastball. I was sending him to the best schools I could send yeah. him to and all this stuff. And he went and saw this film, and he said, you know, it's not really very good. And I said, it's junior and senior year. It's great. I said, it's the best movie you ever saw. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think fathers, you know, good fathers do live with that. They just say, you know, my, my love is what you're breathing. You know, you're breathing my love. You're eating my love. You're reading by my love. Yeah. And, you know, you just have to somehow communicate that in some way. Yeah. And it's, and and so to take this idea and and put it on to God, it's I think it's a C.S. C.S. Lewis quote that says that God is like the sun. It's not merely oh I'm gonna I'm gonna mangle this. It's like it it doesn't merely yes. provide. He's, you know the one I'm talking says, about. Yes, he says I I, I uh, believe in Christianity not only because it's like the sun. It's not, I not only see it, but I see everything else by it. Yes, that's, yeah, that's right, the light. One. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, like God provides these things. Like I thank Him for when things are going well. I thank Him for the ability to get this house that my wife and I are getting. Uh, failing to wreck it. Like I didn't, I didn't thank him for the one bedroom apartment that we have, no. but like some people don't have such a thing. And then, and if you want to even boil it down, like for my life and I'm somebody that because of my depression, I'm not, I'm not often thankful for my life. Mm. Uh, often quite the opposite. And so it's that, but thankfully it's not only that because God does say over and over again, I do love you. Yeah. And so it's it's both. It's he is providing these things that you don't even notice and along the way he is also saying I love you. It's it is interesting this, you know, um I I had a conversation, you know, I don't know if you know the radio um uh, talk show host Dennis Prager. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, he's he's a brilliant guy and yeah. he's virtually a rabbi. I mean, he knows so yeah. much about uh J Jewish theology that I I I think he went to yeshiva school, and he's, he's virtually a rabbi. And we got in a conversation once where he said to me, we were talking about the difference between, because I'm a Jew who became a Christian, mm -hmm. and we were talking about the differences between the two religions. And he said to me, I cannot logically, he said, all my faith is based on logic, and I cannot logically believe in a loving God. And I said, that's interesting. How do you explain creation? And he said, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, well, that's, you know, that's an interesting admission. You know, that's a, you know, cause to me, that is where it begins. You know, that yeah. there is this thing about, about life that when you think about it from a certain point of view, like even, even your depression is a beautiful thing. You know, mm. I mean, I know, I know it's a terrible thing to it say. It doesn't often feel but, like that, but, but, it, but, it but it does. I say it to somebody who has, who's been depressed and has yeah. struggled in the past with depression and uh, and it is this vital sense that you are alive always, even yeah. then, you know. You know, sometimes like, well, at the moment, all I can feel is pain, but that's something. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's something. Exactly. <laughs> what you can yeah. get sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so I do want to, 
you know, I've, I've talked with a, a number of listeners, oddly enough, about this topic. I know, I know an odd amount about my listeners' fathers, mm. um, which is a weird thing to say. It sounds a little stocky. But, um, and so I wanted to, to talk about this that, you know, let's say you do have a, a very flawed father, and let's say you are having a hard time, maybe even if you've gotten past him or gotten past his flaws and you've gotten to a place of forgiveness, maybe you're having a hard time, you know, squaring, uh, squaring yourself with God where you have a, a clearer idea of who he is because there's an intangibility there. So what I wanted to mention, I will, I'm going to, excuse me, I'm going to read this passage out of John. It's John 14 verses one through nine. I will try to read it quickly. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. Uh, Do not let your hearts be, tro- be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you uh, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen, the fa- anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so... You know, I mentioned the intangibility of God and, you know, how on earth can we, can we picture what he looks like and, and how he would sound. And while certainly the Old Testament, while the Bible does personify God and, and give him words, if you want to look as far as actions and attitudes, you can just look at Jesus. Like that is, that is an expression of God's love and it is a visualization of God's love. And so... Um, so if you are having a difficult time, um, visualizing what God could be, just, just read through the new Testament, read who Jesus was and realize that is God. He's, he reaches out to people that society sees as, uh, as unacceptable. Um, he still says there, there are things that are unacceptable, go and sin no more. But in the meantime, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone, like he he's man, he managed to juggle all of these things that our human fathers and any and every human can't. You know, I think that's a, a great point, and I think one of the things that in my the last couple of years in my what what in Christianese they call your Christian journey or whatever sure. whatever stupid thing they call it. <laughs> um, but but uh, one of the things I've concentrated very closely on is the personality of, of Christ. Like who, mm-hmm. who is I mean how do I get to know him uh, better and know him more closely? And one one of the f- interesting things I've tried to put church theology out of my mind. Like I've just thought like read the book, what does he say? What does he do? Probably a good call. Yeah. I mean I just I just I just thought like let 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 all the voices go away and all the things that people have that like barnacles have stuck to him all these mm-hmm. years. Let me just see him. He's right there in the book. Let me read him. And I found he says some very, very strange things and some things that really uh, took me aback. Now, for instance, when he is walking on water and Peter comes to him and says, let me walk on the water. And Peter starts to walk on the water and he takes a couple of steps and then he 
gets frightened and he begins to sink. And Jesus says to him, oh, ye of little faith. And I thought, wait a minute. He was walking on water. How much faith is he supposed to? He did okay for a while there. (laughs) I thought thought, that's more faith than I have. And and he actually does. I mean, there's another scene like that, the same sort of thing where I I think a centurion comes to him and says, my son is ill. Or maybe it's not. Somebody comes to him. I I believe it's a, and he, and he says like, oh, by your faith, you have, your son is ill. It's a centurion. before he says this, he says to him, this is in John, a guy comes to him and asks to heal his son, and he says, ah, oh, this generation won't be satisfied until you have a sign. You know, you won't believe until you yeah. have a sign. You think like, the guy's son, you know, <laughs> he's asking you to heal his son. And so his, his, he is actually seeing a world very different than the world we yeah. see. And he says that. He says, you know, now you have the light you can see. When I'm gone, it's going to be dark again. And I think that that is what... I strive to do is to try to see you know, a little bit, yeah. which I think is what faith, the meaning of faith, yeah. is to believe that that world that he saw, that world in which people are healed, that world in which people walk on water, that world in which uh, matter is just a representative of the spirit, uh, that world that he illuminated for a very brief period of time and then left us uh, here to just believe in it. You know? And so uh, as we, as we uh, wrap up, I will say that... Um, I uh, wanted to briefly talk about, I'm not going to read it, but I'm, you know the story of the prodigal son. Everybody knows it. Uh, so uh, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. Uh, it's told elsewhere, but that's the one I chose to latch on to. Um, so, you know, we have the two brothers. We have the one that stays home. We have the one that uh, goes his own way, uh, as uh, as uh, Stevie Nicks would say. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a dumb joke. Anyway, uh, so... <laughs> It's late. I'm. It's not actually late, but I'm exhausted. Um, so uh, and so this, you know, the the prodigal son goes off and just squanders his his inheritance, and uh, and then he comes back, comes you know, basically crawling back, and so uh, so Jesus is telling the story, and he says, while he was a long, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him, and so you know. If you've been Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard a number of sermons about uh, the prodigal son. And so I'm not necessarily saying anything new, but there's something about it's not merely that he allowed his son to come back and just like stood on the porch. And it's like, oh, here he comes. I will wait here for him and I will have the doors open. That in itself is pretty amazing. But it's no, no, no. I'm, I can't wait to put my arms around this this kid who is very broken and has made some terrible mistakes. Um, but then we often hear the other side. We hear about the older son who was steadfast and all that and is judgmental of his brother. And the the father says to him, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so in a lot of sermons about the prodigal son, we tend to be really judgmental of the second brother um, because he's judgmental. Yes. But what I like here is that there's really no judgment. Yeah. There's no judgment for the younger son or the other or the older son from the father. Like he understands the limitations of both. He says like my younger son went and did this thing and boy does he regret it now. My older son is not seeing any of the reward. He's looking at he's he's comparing himself to somebody else. My my older son does not understand any more than my younger son. Mm-hmm. And we scold the older son because that tends to be who we see ourselves as. And so it's like, okay, well, if we're going to learn something, it's that we can't be like that older son. 
but the father has love and assurance for both. It, it, I think that's absolutely true. And it, it is one of the things when I said I try to put church teaching aside is I find that the judgment is almost always from the preacher, not the book. Sure. Uh, the, the woman at the well, the same thing. They always say, oh, he saw her sin. He doesn't say that. He doesn't mm-hmm. say it. He just saw her life. You know, he just saw what she was doing. It's like you know, everything, every, all the guilt comes from her if it, if it even is guilt. And the same yeah. thing with Martha and Mary. I've whole, heard whole sermons like condemning Martha, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not what Jesus is saying at all, ever, you know. And I think that that's, you know, the only time he says that is to powerful religious people. Yeah, yeah. The only time he really lets rip, you know, and then, yeah. and then he really lets rip is on people who bl- close the door yeah. uh, to God. And, and I think, you know, this, this is a, a key thing, this, that thing that you said of God coming to greet you. Mm-hmm. When I wrote my memoir... The great one, good thing. The great thank you. When I wrote my memoir, <laughs> the, the the great good thing, one of the which is the story of my conversion and kind of my life story. One of the strangest things that happened to me was it was comical. I mean, comical how often God was clearly present, like almost with like a big you know high God, like lights of neon lights of saying God that I didn't see him and didn't see him until I wrote the book. Didn't see it until hmm. I was reading the book and thought, oh wow, you, you, did you see Lake Mungo? What was it? Lake Mungo. Oh, it's a wonderful ghost story. You should watch okay, it. It's, it's wonderful. Right. It's it's up. It's really good. It's a found footage. It's the uh, first ghost. I've heard of it. Oh, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. One of the things is they keep taking pictures, trying to find the ghost, mm. and then later, like during the end credits, they show you where the ghost was. That ah. was my experience of writing. Uh, of writing this book is suddenly I realized they're all the, you know, he's constantly reaching out, constantly coming after me, constantly yeah. coming down the road to greet me. And sometimes you can just be that dense that you yeah. don't see what's right, what's right there. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, the reason that Jesus speaks in parables is because like, all right, we're going to, I'm going to take these big principles and condense them and make them very tangible and very easy to understand. And what's, and even in something like the prodigal son, which is a pretty simple, uh, simple story, we still have such a desperate desire to like comb a lesson out of it mm-hmm. in such a way as like, okay, well, how can I be different? And it's like, well, yes, that's not a bad attitude to have, but it's not a story about being different. It's a story about how loved you are. Yeah. And That's just right. how much that love extends, uh, how far that yeah. extends, regardless of which brother you are. And so, you know, for those that, you know, f- in my case, I had, a, I had a father who I knew loved me, but I didn't feel loved me. In your case, you had a father you, that you did not feel like was on your side. Um, and for some, they had a father who left. For some, they had a father who they wish had left. <laughs> um, and so... If if that is a if that is a roadblock for you to keep from like embracing God as a father, maybe you think of God in any number of other ways that are comforting. That's fine, but keep in mind that like that God is is the father that we are meant that we were meant to have, and and if you want an example, just look at how Jesus uh, speaks of himself, look at how he treats other people, and look at the stories that he tells. And hopefully that will make that fall away. And it might even allow you to forgive your own father, your own father and mother and whoever else 
um, in the process. So uh, just wanted to uh, put that out there. Um, we are going to go ahead and wrap up. I will say that uh, you are welcome to leave a comment on this post at uh, morethanonelesson.com. You can email me, Tyler, morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at More Lessons, and you can like us on Facebook. Andrew, where can people find you online? Uh, I guess uh, you can find hear my podcast at thedailywire.com, mm-hmm. and you can find me on Twitter at Andrew Clavin. All right. And uh, once again, do check out uh, The Great Good Thing. It is a really wonderful book, and I think a very... Uh, a very, I don't mean this in a negative way. It's a very easy read. Like when you hear somebody's like memoir about theology and faith, you might think that sounds a bit dry, but let's not forget Andrew is a a writer of crime novels. And so you find a way to make it like kind of this at times a little, uh, James Elroy esque in like in, in capturing your, your feelings and your thoughts at a given time. So I really like it and I really recommend it. So anyway, thank you very much, Andrew, for being here. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure Uh, to talk to you. And thank you guys for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye.